Hello, my name is Tucker Johnson, and I am your host today as we experience NIMSY Live, where we talk about the latest and greatest in translation, localization, internationalization, culturalization, and all that fun stuff that global companies need to delight their international customers, or at least not piss them off too much. On this program, we invite guests who like to have fun and have some value to add for our audience of globalization professionals. I'm always eager to provide a platform to those with a good story or a good data set. So let us know if there are any topics you'd like covered or guests we should reach out to for future episodes. If you haven't already done so, make sure that you are subscribed to NIMSI Insights. We're coming to you live today on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and a couple others, I think. So whatever platform of choice. Um, that you're logging in on, make sure that you subscribe or follow, and you will be one of the first people to be informed when we publish new podcast episodes or publish new research from our research team here at NIMSY Insights. And without further ado, and since the music just conveniently ended, I will give a quick introduction to the topic today and what we're talking about. We are talking with Michelle Hecken about her experience with the mergers and acquisition process. Um, She is one of the, or she is the, was, I should say, the owner of Alpha Translations in Canada and recently went, recently, several years ago, went through an exit with her company and sold her company and now is off doing fun stuff, consulting stuff, which we're going to get into here later. Um, So in her previous life, she was owner of Alpha Translation, but today she is an executive coach and author specializing in working with successful entrepreneurs and CEOs to help them create a fun and fearless life and business fun, fearless life and business so that they have more time, energy, focus, and joy in their lives. Oh, I stumbled through that introduction. Correct me, Michelle. Um, What am I missing here? (laughs) Hi, Tucker. Um, That was great. Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate it. Nothing missing there. And um, yeah, I'm happy to be on the show. I'm excited to chat with you. Um, Seeing that when I sold my company in 2019, January 2019, um, NIMSY helped me through the process and um, helped me find a buyer. And so I'm, I'm very happy to be here and, and chat with you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for the plug. You have, you've prevented <laughs> me from having to plug myself, but I'll still do that right now. Um, for those of you that aren't aware, NIMSY does, NIMSY is um, very involved in the mergers and acquisition space, particularly in the language services industry. And if there's, we're hoping to answer some of your questions. If you're a company owner out there that is interested in the idea, thinking about maybe one day retiring and doing something fun or doing something different, I should say, because running an LSP is, of course, fun, then reach out to us, uh, m at nimsy.com or just info at nimsy.com. We'll put you in touch with Jonathan Otis, who runs that practice for us, and some of the companies that we've helped find successful partners for their exit right here. As you can see, Alpha Translations Canada is front and foremost. So, Michelle, um, I have some rough questions lined up for us today, but as you know, we're just going to go through, have a very conversational podcast today. But I wanted to start off by asking you, what were the deciding factors in your exit? So like, 
did you just wake up one day and say, I can't take this anymore. I need out. Uh, <laughs> I need to go find something else. I'm sick of running an LSP. Um, what were kind of, what was the thought process when you were deciding to exit your company? Uh, great question, Tucker. What was the thought process that got me to exit my company? Um, it, it developed over several years. Um, and so I started my company when I was 23 or something like that. And I, I started it in 1993 with a fax machine pre-internet. Um, and we served clients from Canada, like from our location in Canada, we served clients in Europe um, doing overnight translations. And so I ran the company for about 25 years. I put a team in place. Um, I had a fantastic team. My, my COO basically executed my vision and ran the company. So I wasn't really involved in the day-to-day -day for many, many years. So it, it then begs the question, well, if you're not working that much and you're looking at strategy and all of those things um, and traveling all over the world, why would you want to sell and give up your cash flow? And I, and I got, I got that, from, that question from a lot of people. And for me, it was really simply, I wanted to do something different. Basically, half of my life my well all of my adult life that's what I had done and I enjoyed it and I loved it uh, and I felt it was just time to change and explore different ideas coupled with um, and I think a lot of LSP owners probably feel that a little bit as well coupled with the fact that after running it for 25 years getting that energy to say okay machine translation, um, privacy legislation, What's all the of next those thing? things. What's the next like, thing? The, and the good news about language services industry is that there's always something new. It's always something exciting to learn. The bad news about the language services industry is there's always something new. There's always something yeah. exciting to learn. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I, I, I actually had to ask myself really honestly is, do I have the energy and the enthusiasm to kind of rebuild and build up the company again with with the recent developments and and with the recent technology and and unlike you um, playing around with new technology and doing those things is not one of my favorite things to do and so I, I talk about let's work on our strength and let's work on what we're really great at and and that wasn't me and so it was just time for me to embark on a on a new adventure. Well, there you have it. And I'm sure there's lots of people out there in your shoes. I know there's lots of people out there in your shoes because we talk to those people. <laughs> and in my mind, there's not even my mind, my experience talking to LSP owners out there. There's people that want to sell. There's people that are thinking about selling. And then there's people that it's not even on their mind, but in the back of their mind, they know that one day they might need an exit strategy. And what we tell people who perhaps aren't ready to pull the trigger yet, engage a, a broker and start shopping their company around, because you know there's quite a bit of work, as you know, that goes into this process. It's like, it's like selling a house, but on steroids, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. So what we tell people is even if you're not wanting to pull the trigger right now, there are certainly some things that you can do to help prepare for an exit one day because you don't want to get into a position where you're you want you need to sell right now because you just can't do it anymore you're fed up but your company's not going to get the price that you expect from it because you haven't done a few simple things so next i'd like to ask about 
preparing for the exit, what were some of the steps that you took in your experience, and I know it's different for everybody, that yeah. set you up for success through the, the process? Huh. Um, I, I wish I would have taken more steps to prepare. <laughs> hindsight's so always twenty twenty. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So um, it was it was really hard on my team. So I had I had an amazing team, and most of them are I, I think are still there. Um, and basically, the due diligence part, um, and we did it fast. Like the process was fast. You I, did. I, I remember it was yeah. it was a whirlwind. Yeah, guys. I accepted the offer, um, I think on my birthday, um, oh, in birthday. October, yeah, in October. And, um, and then the, the closing date was supposed to be December 16th. Mm -hmm. So really only three months and we ended close ended up closing, uh, January 16th, just with Christmas and just some, some things, but it was so much work, uh, for my team. And obviously for me, of course, too. So one of the things I wish I would have prepped more. Um, even years before, if you're th thinking there's an exit somewhere on the horizon, is to really like go through all of your contracts, um, make sure everything is in place so that your team has time to put all of those things together so they don't have to spend 12, 14 hours a day, which is what my team did um, to back me up on all of this, um, really just getting the due diligence ready. It is a lot of work, but if you can prepare at least half of it you could easily prepare you know over the years before and then when it comes it's a lot easier on your team so that's something i wish i would have known and prepped a little sooner yeah so just keeping good books keeping your wicks trimmed and having all of that stuff because in that due diligence process it it's like a it's it's an audit essentially if for those for yeah. those of us that have ever been audited by the IRS here in the US or somebody else is they want to look at everything they want to dive deep into everything and sometimes and if to my listeners out there I'm not saying this is necessarily you but there rumor has it that there are some LSPs out there that are not keeping the cleanest books um, cleanest records not everything is available at a minute's notice and those are the companies that, in our experience, we see struggle with this process a little bit because, you know, when a potential investor, a potential buyer comes and says, I want your accounts receivable aging summary, it's like, well, we don't, we don't have that report. So you actually have to go and create a brand new report. Or I want a list of all of your customers sorted by revenue for the last three years. And so, yeah. well, we don't keep that report. Right. So companies that don't, as a matter of business, keep, I don't want to say good, but let's say thorough reporting. Um, it's not a blocker so much. It's just more work for them because not only do they have to provide the information, they have to gather the information and before they can even provide it. Um, I, I agree, Tucker. And, and to add to that, too, I mean, we had all of that in place. Luckily, like we had immaculate records. We had all the reports, but sometimes the buyer wants to see them a little bit differently. Right. Right. So for example, we did gross margin based on revenue minus translator editor costs. We didn't put our project managers on that top gross margin line, but the buyer wanted to see it that way. Right. So now you have to re 
do your reports, which is fine. But if you're not used to the practice of keeping your books properly, you're not going to exude the same confidence in the conversations. Because even if you prep and you have those numbers, um, if you're not working with those numbers all the time and you're used to them, you're going to come off a little insecure when when the buyer asks you questions. So there's another benefit to really kind of preparing all of that ahead of time. And, and also for translation companies, for localization companies, like we have a lot of NDAs and contracts. I mean, we worked with law firms. There were so many. And in our case, so many of them were in German. Right. Right. So... So you got to, yes, know any good translators. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. So like the, the contract piece really took a ton of time to organize, to put in place. And so that is something that you can do years before. And so when that comes, yes, you're going to be busy with due diligence and, and all of those numbers and questions and, and opening your kimono, which, you know, when you're selling to a competitor, a large competitor, um, is also a process that needs to be managed. Yep. But you're just going to be so much more prepared to know what to say at what point in time because you've been working with these numbers all along. So um, I would definitely, definitely um, second what you said about getting into the habit of of having proper record keeping and proper and 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 knowing how to analyze it i know it's also one right. of renato's favorite topics is like if you don't know how to read your balance sheet and your pnl oh, and gosh, nothing yes. jumps out at you not yeah, on the balance sheet you have a he problem. loves talking about balance sheets yeah but but it's true it's true mm-hmm. because and all of this is it's leads me into the next theme i wanted to touch on here which is valuation right all of this is leading up to a valuation process. The comp- if you're selling your company, um, that buyer needs to know how much it's worth. And the, w- the way that they do that is by looking looking under your kimono, essentially. Yeah. And this is a process that I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. And all of this stuff, by the way, um, this, is, this is why I recommend to people, even if you're not looking to sell this year or in the next six months, talk to somebody um, for example, Jonathan Otis here at NMZ Insights, or but it, it, it can be anybody, right? You can talk to a consultant who's been through this before. Um, talk to Michelle. She has her own coaching business right now, which we're going to um, show a little bit later. And just get an idea because you want to make sure uh, we've talked to a lot of folks that they think that they are taking the right steps to prepare for an exit. And only after they pull the trigger and start talking to a broker, they realize, oh, shoot, I was focused on the completely wrong areas. Um, And if I had just focused on X, Y, and Z in the last two years, I would have gotten a much higher value. So let's talk about this valuation process. Uh Because at the end of the day, the company owners who are considering selling, they have a number in their head. They, They have an idea of... If I were to ever sell my company, this is how much that I would expect to get from it, how much I think it's worth. And so we have our own number. Like if I were to sell Nimsy Insights today, here's the number in my head. And evaluators are going to have their own numbers. And then the market itself is going to have its own number, right, depending upon market fluctuations and stuff right now. What were some of the, and I don't really have a well-formed question here, but were you surprised by anything in the valuation process, things that stood out (laughs) to you? Yeah, absolutely, Tucker. Um, so the valuation, like I, what I did um, is I, I, I looked at 
previous exits, who was buying, who bought whom for which amount and which multiple of EBITDA. Um, so I did look into that. And, and so what stood out is that typically companies who own some kind of proprietary technology obviously got a higher multiple of, of, of EBITDA um, and a higher valuation. What really helped me, and, and, and this is I, I, I talk about a little bit in the book that is not quite out yet, but I talk about offboarding. So what I did really successfully in my business is basically I offboarded myself from the active role in the company. So I had my COO and we created the process. You know, most most entrepreneurs or CEOs don't have a job description either, right? right. So we created that to make sure we wouldn't step on our toes. And, and really she ran everything. And so I didn't own... I didn't own the relationships with the clients. I didn't own the relationships with, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't own it. So I could walk away and I had built my company and worked in that fashion being offboarded, which allowed me to focus on strategy, which allowed me to focus on innovation and competitiveness and, and, and kind of set the course for the goals and my team executed. So it was great because that allowed the buyer to come in and not have to worry at all about business continuity because business right. continuity is a big factor in the valuation of your company. Right. If you are working in your company as a project manager or you own sales or you own all the relationships with clients, and I hear this all the time when I coach other all companies, not, not just in the language industry, where it's like, yeah, but, you know, I'm this and I have to own the relationships. I, I can't do it any other way. It's not true. You can totally do it in a different way um, so that you don't own the relationships. And that's a huge contributing factor to your valuation. And I got a higher multiple than industry average for a company that doesn't own uh, any proprietary technology. Mm -hmm because of that. Yeah, super and important. I got to walk away. There was no earnout, right? So That's so what what tell us what an earnout is. Well, sure. So when a company sells, you can either I mean there there's various shades of gray here, but just for for simplicity, you either get all cash and you walk away or you get a chunk of cash and then they say, "Okay, I want you to stay for a year or 6 months or 2 years." And then once that is done, then you will get the rest of the money or the rest of the money comes in installments. And the problem with that is you really have no control because you're not setting the strategy, you're not setting the goals, you're not running the company. So whether you achieve those goals or not is not really fully in your control. So if you do have an earnout, make sure the goals that you negotiate, the KPIs for the payments are as much in your control as possible. But the earnout often happens. It, it, it hap I, I hear it so many times where you don't get the full amount. Something comes up, you don't hit this goal, right? So you kind of get less. You're still working in your company, which for me, I said straight away, I didn't work in my company for the last 10 years. I'm not going to start working in it now. So I specifically only looked at deals that would allow me to walk away because that was my goal. Um, but when we're more involved in the company, instead of working on the business, um, more often than not, we get offered an earnout, and, and it's just not ideal.
I think. Well, yeah, because a lot of times when someone wants to sell their company, they want to sell the company because they want to go buy a horse ranch and yeah. retire, essentially, exactly. or whatever. Fill in the blank <clears throat> bucket list that you have. And this is a big surprise to a lot of people where it's like, oh, what do you mean? What is this earnout? You mean after I sell my company, I'm forced to work in it for two more years, which yeah. is essentially what an earnout is. It says, no, no, no. Like we're going to give you half of the money now, and then we're going to mm -hmm. give you half of the money later. And that's contingent upon you sticking around and meeting certain goals, which which you just mm -hmm. talked about, Michelle. So that can be a big surprise. And this, you know, your advice here is spot on in my opinion it's something that every entrepreneur founder should be thinking about regardless of whether you want to pursue an exit strategy because you know it was and it's this working on your company rather than working in your company if you're the right. most value if your company crumbles without you there to manage it or if you are the top salesperson you as the owner are the top salesperson in your company which is a very very common scenario um, especially in the language services industry then you can never take a vacation like for, forget about exit strategy you can't take a vacation you can't leave if, if you get sick um your company's going to go under and so in my mind it's just a best practice to be following regardless of, of whether you're pursuing an exit strategy. Yeah, I, I agree, Tucker. And, and to add on to that, um, you're stunting the growth of your company if you you're the if you're the bottleneck. And I see it so many times when people start another company and all of a sudden their first company grows like crazy. Why? Because they got out of it. Um, and, and, and really kind of setting that up. I mean, one of my favorite quotes from Richard Branson is, is like, I don't just, Loosely, loosely, I'm not quoting him exactly, but um, I, I don't distinguish between work and life. It's all life. And, and I talk about that in my book as well, um, that work-life balance is kind of bullshit because as entrepreneurs, we love what we're doing. So right. when we say, okay, now I've worked X right. amount of hours, right? Now I have to do something to offset that. Well, work is life too. Yep. And, and we should be enjoying that. And, and we can set it up in a way where we can enjoy life, where we can cascade it through to our team, where we're all working to our strengths as much as we can. And, and everybody's happier. Yep. And looking at that process. And then the, the biggest thing is empowering your team. Um, it's the biggest thing. We're always told in order to work on your business, we have to delegate more. Mm. Yeah. Right? That's what we're told. Mm -hmm. And and I'm here to tell you, you need to stop delegating completely because delegating keeps you stuck in your business. Oh, you're saying the team should be self-sufficient. That's right. Because ah, okay. what happens? So when we delegate, typically we delegate the stuff that we procrastinate on. Right. And then it sits on our desk and eventually we feel guilty and it's got to get done and, and we give it to somebody else to do it. And then we feel guilty because we feel like we're giving somebody somebody else our garbage that we don't want to do. Have you been reading right? my diary? <laughs> get out of my head. Everybody does it. Yeah. And so but, but let, I, I really want to drive this point home, because what happens then, first of all, we haven't purposefully taken a responsibility and given it to somebody else. We still own the responsibility. So it feels good to get something off your plate. So then you do it again and then you do it again and then 
eventually you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, who did I give that to? And who did I give this project to? And then what happens is you go in and you start micromanaging. It's like, how's that project going? Did I explain this? Do you need help? Blah, blah, blah. What's the message you're sending your team? The message is, I don't trust you. I don't think you can do this. And then what happens to us, we start burning out because we're having to increase our mental load and keep thinking about all of these projects versus in what I call the offboarding process, you're purposely looking at the responsibilities, you're looking at everything on your plate, and then you're looking at what's the value to the company? How much time do I spend on it? Do I love it or do I loathe it? And then we can say, okay, let's take this responsibility, the whole thing, and give it to somebody else. Yep. And, and then you can now coach and train, and you're not just randomly delegating stuff off of your desk that doesn't help the company grow or scale, but you're doing it with purpose and, and you're, you're doing. And that's why I say stop delegating, because it's, it's not mindful, it's not strategic. Um, empower your team and give them responsibility. And that will not only build your better company, grow your revenue, create more value for an exit as well. Yeah. Yeah. You won't be stuck with, uh, uh, oh, what is it called? The way they're forced to stick around. So, yeah. The earnout. The earnout. That's right. And, you know, and you're preaching to the choir here, you know, as you may or may not know, Renato and I founded this company a little over five years ago. And when, when we first started talking, I was, I was talking with Renato about like, what do we want this company to be? How do we want the culture to be? And, you know, one of the things that I said to Renato is it's got to be fun. Like it's got to be enjoyable because I can go be miserable working for somebody else and frankly, make more money and have health benefits. <laughs> yeah. Right. So if I'm not, if we're not having fun, then what's the point? And as soon as we could probably a little bit earlier than we should have, but as soon as we could, we hired a CEO or promoted a CEO and Joseph Kubowski, many of you guys listening know Joseph as CEO of Nimsy Insights. I never got to be the CEO of my own company. I think the assumption was that Renato out there, you know, he was the CEO when we first founded and I was managing director was my title. And the assumption was that one day Renato would retire and I'd become CEO. And I skipped that step. And <laughs> I, it was the best thing that I ever did because yeah. now uh, this podcast wouldn't exist if it weren't for that. And because like you said, focus on what you want to be doing, having fun. And the only reason that I can mess around and talk to have these interesting conversations with people is because I'm not in the work day to day, yeah. uh, the company's exactly. running itself. Exactly. So. Exactly. And it's just so important. But you know, that we, we all know this as entrepreneurs. Like if, if we've read any books, if we've heard any talks, it's what we hear, work on your business, not in it. But here's the thing, nobody gives you a roadmap to tell you how to do that. It's faith. It's yeah. faith-based is what it but is. There is it, there's a there spiritual a component to it as well. I'm sure That's there's right. a process too, but you know, the processes start with taking that first step. And exactly. in my experience and opinion, that first step is a, a step of faith. Essentially, you got to say, you know, if I'm going to start down this journey and it's going to be okay, because a lot of times company owners, you know, use the example that company owners are the best salespeople in their own companies. Um, and a lot of times it's because they are, 
Like the the other salespeople that are working for them don't close as many deals. They they right. are the best salespeople. It's not this thing that's like in their head, right? No. So it's this faith based thing where it's like if I stop selling, my team is going to step up to the plate and stuff's going to happen. That that needs to happen. I I, I agree, Tucker. You have to take that first leap of faith. But the first leap of faith is much easier to take when you know, okay, the first thing I'm going to do is list all of my responsibilities and value how much they bring the company forward, um, evaluate if I love doing them, and then come up with a plan of what you want to offboard to whom so that you can coach those people to take that responsibility on. And I, I, I know I'm, I'm plugging a little bit here, but I talk about that whole process in the art of offboarding, um, my, my book, which will come out early next year. Um, there is a process on how to offboard, on how to work on your business that gives you checks and balances, that mitigates risk on your team that empowers your people so that you can do it faster. Because one of the things that happens very often is we take that leap of faith, um, but we don't have processes and checks and balances in place. And sure. we don't really take the time to coach the people to learn how this responsibility works. And it takes practice to make quick decisions. It, it, it does take practice. So there's an opportunity to be purposeful about it and then, it's a much easier process because oftentimes we get out, but as soon as something happens, either our company's growing or our company's not doing well, we get pulled right back in. Right. And then we right. have to do the whole process over again. And it's confusing as heck for the team. It's like now, who, now we talk to you again. Well, no, before we're talking to this person. Oh, and as entrepreneurs, because we know our company, we don't just go in a little bit. When we go back in, we go full blast back. Yep. Yep. Right. Guilty so, as charged. That's right. Yep. So it's important to have those processes in place so that when that temptation comes, you know what to do. So I'll, I'll, I'll share a little story. So I, I had offboarded myself from translating and proofreading and, you know, train my translators, train my proofreaders. And, and I was now doing sales. This is early on, uh -huh. probably whatever, late nineties, early 2000s, something like that. Um, and I walked in and, and my project manager, who was my, my husband then, <laughs> which yep. I'm sure you all know. I'll share a little story. I hope he remembers the story. But um, I came in and I was about to go to the gym and, and, you know, kind of finally have a life after 20 hours of translating and proofreading for several years. And he said, hey, Michelle, can you just proofread this one little paragraph? It's just a couple lines. And I'm like... Uh, and and he was like, "Come on, like it's going to take you less time to do this." That's than how it starts. Send it out. Right? Of course, it's going to take you less time. Of course. Right. And so, and and I remember looking at him and feeling guilty as heck. And I said no. And I turned around and I walked out the door. I got in my car and I drove. And the guilt that I felt, oh my god, I felt like so petty. And why couldn't I do this? But here's why I said no. I knew. That if I looked at that little thing, that I would find something. Of course, that's your job as a proofreader, right? You're going to find something. But I would have found something and it would have undermined my faith. 
that the team can do this yep. and it would have been like oh no and then what and it would have this way the process is it goes to the proofreader we've trained the proofreaders and that is that faith right it's like i have to trust that they're going to step up and if i look at it it's the little things that get you pulled back in because then it's like oh just look at this one too and just look at this one too and and it it just would have held the company back and it was one of the most important no's um that I actually said in my company early on. And, and, and I know that um, I, I, I felt very guilty and it didn't make sense, but in the bigger picture, it's what I had to do. So we have to make sure we don't get pulled back in when we're, when we're coming out and, and rising and having a process for it is really helpful. Truth. And for those of you I brought up on screen here, Offboard Yourself, I put a link into the LinkedIn event here. So for those of you watching on LinkedIn, um, you can follow that link to find out more about offboarding yourself. Oh, and thank you. That's, so I think that's that's our main takeaway from t for today from the M&A process. But I want to bring it back a little bit to um some of my questions just because i spent so much time putting these questions together and they're great questions. all, all of five minutes that i <laughs> i slaved away but what were some of the surprises in the m a process as you came across this uh, you sound like you were pretty competent moving through the process like you said it moved quicker than you thought it was going to go what were some of the things that stood out to you as like oh my gosh i wasn't expecting this i wasn't expecting to have to hire a lawyer i wasn't having expecting to have to you know negotiate with these people anything in particular um you know i was really lucky the offer that we got was fair it was <clears throat> what i was looking for <clears throat> the the process was easy um i i really have to hand it to rws there and uh they did they're pros yeah. Yeah. And this this was before they um they merged um well not merged or whatever they want to call it. Um but they made it easy. Mm -hmm. They were there were some tough moments, yes, but they made it easy. There was a lot of trust there and they never wavered. They weren't looking to kind of cut pricing, cut cut anything from their offer. Um, and, and they were just very easy to deal with. So I really didn't have a ton of surprises at all. So I was very grateful for that process. It was busy, but for my yep. team, for my team, like what I was surprised at back to what we said earlier is how much work it was, despite the fact that our records were immaculate, yep. right? Despite well, the fact that we had all of the numbers, I didn't expect to have my team have to work so many hours to get this done. That was a big surprise. And then the other thing maybe that stood out is that it's very hard to manage the process of um, confidentiality for within your team. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. So that's a whole other topic. Who do you tell? Who do you not tell? You don't know if this deal is going to go through. At what point do you tell them? Well, and then when you tell some people, then they feel uncomfortable because they feel like, now they know something that somebody else doesn't know. So that was hard. Yeah, and it's hard. Well, let, let's go there because that's one of the topics I wanted to touch on is the effect on the team. <laughs> and I've been, um, we're supposed to have Renato with us today. He's been on the selling end like you. He sold, so he's had a couple exits himself. And, but right now he's over in Accra 
Ghana, um, working with a client, and I see Adi that you're watching. I think you yeah. tired Renato out. You kept him busy this week, so Adi's there in the comments. Greetings from Accra. Um, and I've been on the receiving end where I was the project manager, the program director. And I mean, the senior management, of course, didn't come out and say, yes, we are selling our company and all of this stuff. But you can tell because those reports that you're asking about is like every day for several months, I was being asked for a new report on the new financials, plug the numbers this way, yeah. plug the numbers that way. Yeah. So it's like to a certain extent, the team kind of knows that something's going on, but he's still got to be confidential about it. Yeah. Right. But what other effects did you notice in your experience with the team? And then I can talk about some of my experience as a team member. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear that. That would be, I think that'd be really valuable. Um, well, yeah, it was difficult having, obviously, telling my COO, and then we kind of held it back, and then we had to tell the rest of the team because it was obviously just so much work. But then at some point, it was it was really hard for them because they felt like they were lying to the rest of the team, even though they weren't physically lying, but they had to say things that maybe they didn't want to say. And, and for me, um, lying, that was lying is a harsh word. It's not lying. No, they were no, no, it's not. But that's how they felt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. I know. That's how it feels. Like, I know as a manager, when I have information that I'm not allowed to share with my team, it feels like I'm lying to my team. Yes, exactly. So nobody was lying, but that's how they felt. And, and, and I felt really bad that, you know, that kind of was part of the process. And I don't think I've, I've met an owner or an entrepreneur who has sold their company that, that hasn't had that same issue on when do you tell how do you tell and i'd really love to hear your perspective on on that and and so the one thing to add for me it was really oh no i'll, I'll wait i'm sure you're going to touch on that later so I'll, well, I'll just leave it here i think and i'll state i'll say this up front is that I had expectations, like when I was working for a company that was in the process of being sold, and I had certain expectations on what I thought was reasonable for management. And now with a few more gray hairs in my beard, I'm looking back and thinking my expectations probably weren't realistic. They weren't fair to, to the ownership of the company because I expected the moon, right? And who the heck was I? I was just, you know, program whatever, program manager, program director. And so I just say that to caveat this up front, but what I, my experience was, it was more work for me because I was being expected to produce a bunch of different reports and slice and dice data in ways that I'd never seen it before. And ultimately it's, you know, am I going to have a job? I mean, what I say yeah. all the time is like, people want to know three things. Your employees want to know three things. What is my job? What is my job going to, or will I have a job in six months? And what is my job going to be in six months, right? And those are like the three basic things that you need to make sure that your team knows on a daily basis. You can't be happy if you don't know what your job is. You can't be happy if there's uncertainty about your future because what happens then is people start looking for other jobs. And yeah. the best ones, the most qualified ones get other jobs, and what you're left with is the people that couldn't get other jobs. So you're left with yeah. an, an underperforming team. But my experience was just wanting to know what the future held. And I, I'll, I'll just use one example. And I was told that, like, don't lie. Like, 
not giving information to your team, like that's understandable. Yeah. But don't lie to your team. And I was told that there will be no changes happening. Like once it was out of the bag that we were going through this acquisition, it was like, but don't worry, there will be zero changes happening. And to me, that was offensive. Like I got offended by that because I have a brain and I know that there's going to be some changes, Yeah. right? Like if you're going to lie to me, at least make it believable. Something's <laughs> going to change, right? And I'm not saying like, you know, 80% of the workforce, this isn't an Elon Musk takeover or anything. Um, so I'm not saying it needs to be drastic, but when you sit there and you tell me that, don't worry, nothing's going to change, then in my mind, that actually made them lose all credibility because I'm like, yeah. they're lying to me, obviously. So what else are they going to lie about? Yeah. And it was a challenging situation for me. Yeah, it, it really is challenging. And um, so telling the truth, yes, absolutely. But there are points where if you're just entertaining an offer, you don't even know if you know, you're right. going to accept it or how it's going to go down the process. You also don't want to rock the boat. So it's right. always this fine line, yep. right? But then there comes a point and, and to me, that point is sooner rather than later, depending how far you've got. If you know you're going to go through this process and you've accepted it and, and you know you're going to do it, it, it is better to share sooner rather than later, I, I believe, because... Um, it depends on your culture, right? Like we had an open culture. Fair. We shared everything, numbers, everything was transparent. Yep. So now all of a sudden I wasn't being as transparent as I normally am. So it was really relieving when we could share and right. we could say. And and then we also talked about what will happen if we sell. Right. Right. In a realistic way. And yeah, the conversation doesn't need to happen on day one. I think you'd be doing yeah. your team a disservice if you're like, hey, I'm talking to potential buyers because that's just going to provide uncertainty for them yeah. and they're going to have questions and you don't have the answers to those. Exactly. So it's like wait until you actually have some answers before you let them in. Otherwise, you're just making them worry over something they have no control over. And frankly, you don't even have any control over no, at that point. No, 100%. You said that perfectly. I agree. So... In the, and I don't think this was a big, like you said, you had a really good co collaboration with um, RWS and things went pretty smoothly on that front. But a lot of times we talk to um, company owners that are interested in selling and we ask them, what are, who do you want to sell to, right? And one of the first conversations that we'll have with them is essentially, is there any company out there that you absolutely do not want to sell your company to? You don't like them, you hate their guts? Um, or are there companies out there that you think would be a good fit for your company? Did this come across at all in your process when you're entertaining offers or doing the um, outreach to potential buyers? Yes, absolutely. Oh. Really early on in the process, it was one of the first conversations I had with Renato. We were in, um, I think, Lock World Warsaw mm -hmm. in 20, 2018, August. And I had already kind of developed a bit of a hit list, uh, like a yes and no list of exactly that, companies I would want to sell to and companies I wouldn't. And my criteria for that was I wanted to be able to keep my team intact. I wanted to sell to a company whose company culture fit mine, um, where you know I know my my team would be respected, and I wanted a buyer who didn't want to disassemble what we had built. 
Um, but instead, position my company as basically you can take this and add it on to what you're doing, but let us do what we do because that's where the value is. So those were some really important criteria that we um, we talked about. And, and RWS was on the top of that list. Nice. Um, and that's what ended up happening. So it was really interesting. And then Renato, obviously, because Renato knows everybody and everybody knows Renato in the industry, um, basically reached out. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he's the one that stood us up. I can give him a little shit. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I was so looking forward to finally seeing him again because I haven't been doing anything in the industry for, for four years. And so I was, yeah. Oh, reach right. out, reach out. We like I said, Adi has been keeping him busy over there in Ghana. So yeah, yeah, good, good. No, so that that was really important to me, and and I keeping my team intact as much as we we could, and and I knew there was going to be integration, of course, and there was going to be a little bit of a rebrand down the road. But but from the get go, they agreed that they wanted to keep this intact as you know its its unit, and and they did for a long time. Nice. I see we actually have a question from somebody in chat here. Uh, people that about aren't trying to promote. MBO? About MBO. Did you consider an MBO in your process? And I'm going to show my ignorance here. I'm not even sure. MBO, when I think MBO, I think management by objective. Yep. No, management buyout. Man, oh, management buyout. See, yeah, where, where, where I, you're selling I, your company I, to your to your management. Got team. it. Got, okay, I, I told you I'm not super involved with this, so I don't know the lingo. Did, did you consider an MBO? Talk a little bit about that maybe. You know, um, that that is a great question. Um, I, I didn't really and simply, well, I did, but I didn't know enough at the time. And... Um, I, I didn't like I did talk about it. I, my CEO and I talked about it, um, but it just didn't seem feasible at the time um, financially or structurally or however we wanted to do it. And, and so it just wasn't a good fit. But what I know now, so especially in the US, there's a good friend of mine does this. Um, he doesn't do exits, but what he does is he specializes in the MBOs. And he's created a process, um, and again, it doesn't apply in Canada because it has to do with tax and IR, IRS and all of that stuff. But he has a process that is a really genius on how to structure an MBO or how to even set up your owners with phantom shares um, that they can later then redeem. It, it increases retention. Um, it yep. does a lot of good things. I'm not an expert in that process, but yes, if I had known then or yeah, what I know now, I, I probably would have considered it more seriously, but I'm, you know, I'm happy with how things turned out, but it is definitely a great process. And, and if you're in the U S and you want an intro to, you know, the guy who's the genius on this, just shoot me an email and I'm happy to connect you. Yeah. Like I said, hindsight's always 2020. Yeah. So, well, we're watching the clock here, and I'd like to talk to you about life after exit. What have you found? Like, you know, you had this plan to to sell your company and had big plans to go out there. What does life look like to you? Was it like three years later now, four years four. later? Yeah, almost four. January 16th will be four years. Yeah, so um, four years later, what, is, what does it look like for you? Give us a vision, a vision for the other folks out there that are potentially considering their exit as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, 
I was going to take a year off, um, was my plan. And I took about six months off because I'm an entrepreneur because, and I yeah. wanted to start writing <laughs> my book. that's what people like you do. Yeah, That's right. That's right. <laughs> but it was also, so for me, life after exit really wasn't that different. So a lot of people who are really involved in their companies, it's like, okay, now what do I do now? But because I didn't work in my company very much, um, it really, my life didn't change much. Um, I, I did miss my team. That was weird. Not, you know, talking to people and not having any aid to do all of the things that I'm not good at and I don't like doing was challenging. Um, but my life didn't really change. It wasn't like, oh, now I finally get to do all of the things that I couldn't do when I had my business. That, that sense of freedom was already there for me over the past 10, 15 years because of how I, I built up my company. So it wasn't this you know, big moment. And, and, and I kind of missed it a little bit because I thought, okay, now, now I've made it. And now I've sold my company. And, and it's like that feeling that I thought I was going to have never really came because not that much really changed. Uh, what did change what I struggled with a little bit, honestly, is um, not having the cash flow. Right. So we, yeah. you know, yes, I mean, it's, I, I sold to a publicly traded company. Anybody can look up how much money I got for my company. Uh, and, and it was a considerably large amount for me. Uh, I didn't come from background of money or anything like that. Right. Yeah. So not having cash flow was this really scary thing. It's like, okay, I've worked for this little chunk of change for 25 years. That's it. And, and it's like, and that's it. I'm not getting anything it. more. It's gone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. And so that was really, really scary. Um, and, and we, we, we joked, I, I think at one night we were sitting on, uh, on the couch and my, trying to find the movie and my partner's on iTunes and I'm like, is there nothing free on Netflix? And he's like, you're kidding me right now. Right. I'm like, no, I'm really not. <laughs> right. Right. I, I hear that. I hear that. But then, yeah. So I, I did know that I wanted to dabble in coaching. So I started writing my book. Um, I, I took a coaching course. I got my degree, like my, my certification as an executive coach. Um, and then I just kind of tried things on slowly. Yep. So I started getting a couple of clients. I, I started getting invited to some podcasts and, and, and I purposely said, I, I just want to take this slow one client at a time, because what if I don't love it? What if I just think I love it? Right. So it's one of the great opportunities when you've had an exit to give yourself permission to try some other things. Yeah. Um, I started painting. Um, so I'm an artist now. I'm, I'm actually talking to a gallery to um, to put some of my art in there. So, nice. you know, explore some fun stuff. And and I really what came together for me when I wrote my book and um, and what I'm really passionate about is. I basically went and said, okay, so what did I do well over the past 25 years or the past 10 or the past 15 to get my business to this point where I've been enjoying my life, I've been traveling, I've been focusing what I love best, focusing on what I love best in my business, which is strategy and, and looking forward. Um, what did I do and how can I share that knowledge with other entrepreneurs who want to do the same? Because I'm, I'm a member of Entrepreneurs Organization, which is a global organization of entrepreneurs. Um, and I see so many people that can't get out of their business. So when I was developing my book, 
I was really kind of focusing on that process that I kind of just touched on and scratched the surface of earlier um, to kind of say, okay, what I did well, how can I share that with other people, both in my book, both in my speaking and in my coaching practice as well. And I've just really like at the beginning, I wasn't sure. Let's see. It was like, oh, I'm trading my time for money. I'm not used to trading my time for money. I'm used to having a business that runs without me and generates cash flow. Um, and now I'm trading my time for money. So I wasn't sure if I would love it. And I can tell you, Tucker, I have found my passion. I love what I'm doing. I love working with clients. I love sharing what I've learned, what's worked for me with other entrepreneurs. And and yeah, I'm, I'm all in. I, I really, really enjoy what I'm doing now. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's a good feeling to be able to give back in a yeah. way. Right. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I mean, sh and yeah, sure. You're charging money for it. Right. Yeah, and course. just like Nimsy does, we charge money yeah. for it too, but still like, it's a good feeling to kind of take all of those hard knocks that you've been through and hopefully try to guide some people in a way where they don't need to make as many mistakes as you do through it. Yeah, exactly. And and I do donate like 30% of my time. I work with startups. I, I'm part of the UN mentorship program yep. for women uh, entrepreneurs. So I have a couple of companies under my wing that I coach for free um, just because I, I want to give back. And, and these are women with smaller companies, lots of potential. Um, my the, the lady I'm, I'm coaching right now, she's in Malaysia and she's like tripled her business. And it's just so rewarding a, a to lot see of times, the progress that she's making. Yeah, and a lot of times these guys, like, they got good heads on their shoulders. They, yeah. they got the passion. They've got everything that they need. And it legit just needs a little bit of guidance, like tweak yeah. this and tweak that, and boom, yeah. they yeah. blow up. And that is so rewarding. Yeah. We, we do the same here at Nimsy Insights. Um, and, well, I should say Renato does a lot of it, <laughs> most of it. But it just feels really good. Yeah. You know, it's like it's it's this dichotomy. Yes, I love working with companies that already have systems in place where the CEO wants to offboard and I'll work with them and I'll work with their team together, which is great. And there is just also it's so rewarding to work with smaller companies um, just pro bono to help them out and see them thrive. It's yeah. just really, really cool. Well, let's um, I want to give this one more plug here. The website, I put a link to it here on LinkedIn, but make sure I'm low hanging fruit right here. You can follow Michelle on LinkedIn here to stay up to date. You can go check out her website michellehecken.com and i specifically wanted to call out the fun and fearless leadership tips section here where she's got some some blogs really good stuff in here like if if you like what we've been talking about today and want to go a little bit deeper i would recommend you go check this out and get inspired learn some new things and with that michelle any closing arguments or last words before we <laughs> sign off for the day here yeah, no, thank you. I'm I'm so thrilled to have uh, had the opportunity to chat with you, and um, I'm gonna hound Renato to say, okay, we we gotta still do this again with you. Um, and I'm happy to be on here. And and like I said at the beginning, I'm really grateful because Nimsy really did help me um, find the right buyer at the right price, and you guys did a great job. So highly recommend Nimsy if you're looking at that and. Um, these yeah they, they were awesome well thank you and just once that book is out give us a call back and we'll have you on the podcast again because i want to dig deeper on it 
Sounds great. All right. All right, I'll take us out here. Ladies, gentlemen, chat, we are out of time for today. If you enjoyed this episode of Nimsy Live, then make sure that you are subscribing to Nimsy Insights so that you will be notified next time that we schedule a live event or when we publish new research. Just as a heads up here, we do have an event on the calendar for next week when we are talking with Amy Ansari from Translators Without Borders, and they're doing some really interesting stuff over there at Translators Without Borders. Um, check out their website or dial in, call in, log in next week to find out here on Nimsy Live. Once again, and finally, my name is Tucker Johnson, host of Nimsy Live, and it has been my pleasure to join you all today. I appreciate our guest, Michelle Hecken. I appreciate our, my colleagues here at Nimsy Insights doing all of the hard work so that I can have these fun conversations. I appreciate everybody in our industry that fills out our research and helps us contribute to the industry in that way. And last but not least, I appreciate you guys in chat for making it a lively conversation today. And with that, I will bid you adieu until next time. Cheers. Cheers.